This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. So I think it's essential to look beyond just counting consults or counting educational programs or policies, so on, and to look for more meaningful things to measure that relate more directly to the program's effectiveness. In our two-part series, we have been unpacking how healthcare ethics committees, ethics programs, and healthcare ethics consultants provide guidance to patients, their families, and clinicians in hospitals and healthcare delivery sites. In this second episode, we focus on data, data that demonstrates the impact of ethics consultation. Our guests look to deepen the effectiveness of this service to all involved in healthcare decision-making. Our guests in this episode continue the conversation and include... Dr. Ellen Fox, president of Fox Ethics Consulting and a bioethics consultant, educator, researcher, and policymaker. Mary Homan, Southwest Division Vice President of Theology and Ethics for Common Spirit Health. And Mark Rapenchek, Vice President of Ethics and Church Relations for Ascension. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Why should ethics committees track data? How is this relevant to their work? I still remember very early in my career, the pivotal shift in my work in this space was the the blessing of a pulmonary critical care doc who I had a very close relationship with and did quite a bit of consultation and collaboration with. And I remember at a grand rounds, he stood up in the back of the room and in a deep, thick German accent uh, said, Mark, this is great. And we partner and I appreciate your services often in my in the care of my patients. But how do I know you're actually changing anything? Here's a colleague and friend of mine, you know, standing up in grand rounds, taking me to task, <laughs> you know, and the pause that it gave me and the mm. need for me to try to provide a answer that let's just say was at best a proxy for where I where we needed to go. Um, was the impetus for thinking about ROI metrics. I think it's sloppy if we're not tracking things. Everybody else, you know, nurses are are in the chart, you know, tracking how many times they turn a patient, um, the exact time that medication's being administered. And, you know, if, I, if I'm not documenting either in the patient records so that it's clear that I, as an ethicist, was consulted, and here's what recommendations are, and I'm not documenting for myself, um, you know, that calls into question of whether or not I should be accessing patient records, whether or not I'm actually contributing, you know, to quality patient outcomes. The real leaders in the field, what I see is that they are emphasizing systems thinking in their approach to ethics. For example, they are um, they're applying principles of continuous quality improvement and performance measurement. What data elements are important for an ethics committee or ethics program to track or measure? Mary, how about you? What's the reason for the consult? Um, and ensuring that it's not 800 kinds of reasons. That's why I suggest, you know, using some sort of coding system so that it's about shared decision-making informed consent, that it's not whether or not 
um, Sally can make decisions on behalf of her step-grandma. That is too much information, and that's not going to help then compare this case to another case. Another easy one is, is who's making the requests for the ethics consultations. That's an indication of organizationally where we see value in ethics and who trusts ethics. So if, if, if we see a lot of consults coming from nursing, is nursing using their appropriate chain of command to raise nursing issues through? Um, and if they're asking ethics as a sideline, as opposed to going up through nursing management, this is also a way to examine who's making the request. And if you're not getting any requests from physicians, that's a really um, big problem. Why is it that we have a culture that physicians feel that they are the captains of the ship and they don't need anybody else to tell them how to do ethics? Um, this is really important, especially when we think about community hospitals, the difference between community hospitals and academic medical centers, um, that at an academic medical center, I, I more frequently got calls from nurses. I sometimes would get calls from residents, but I very rarely got calls from attendings. And what that showed to me as we were able to delve deeper, again, going back to the reason for the consult, number one, and then the requester, is that they didn't see a problem with, with what was being conducted, but the nurses who were at the bedside all the time could more readily assess that, that there was conflict already brewing. The third thing that, that folks need to be tracking is, is what kind of recommendation is being given and was the recommendation followed? So if I just track that I gave a recommendation to honor a patient's wishes, or if I gave a recommendation um, to follow policy, and that was not what the resolution was with the case, then that shows to me that ethics doesn't actually have area of influence, that we simply checked the box that we needed an ethics consultation, but um, the decision was made to go a different direction. The fourth thing that I think folks should be tracking, and this is where it becomes a little bit more nuanced, is, is identifying how does this improve patient care? Mark, how about you? So in terms of the actual analytics or the, the data itself, I mean, I think there's two big pieces here. One is data entry, right? And getting the right pieces of information and being willing to expand and change that, right? Not recognizing it's one-stop shop. Okay, we've got it. It's constantly evolving. Um, but specifically to the types of, of early work, it was impact metrics like, um, you know, mean time admit to consult. Well, why was I asking that? Well, I was experiencing the fact that early on in my career, we'd get asked 20 days after admission, 30 days after admission. And what I experienced was entrenched positions. And somehow we were supposed to magically solve an entrenched position of stakeholders, right? When I started getting asked, when that meantime admit to consult started to drop below double digits, it was no longer resolve an intractable dilemma. It was, hey, here's what I'm thinking, a couple of different options. Can you help guide my thinking as to what would be optimal, both from a, from a strictly from a patient uh, um, uh, provider relationship standpoint? Completely changed the dynamic of the work that we did. So that was that's one specific area. But in terms of you know, impact, and in, in, we looked at readmission rates. 
We looked at readmission rates based on consultation, non-consultation. We looked at overall cost and impact uh, based on consultation, non-consultation with like groups, comparing cohorts, being very rigorous about like cohorts. Ellen, how about you? There are a lot of different things that that ethics programs can measure. It depends on where um, where your program is starting out and what areas need to be improved. And I think different um, ethics programs should be measuring different things at different points in time. Um, in my experience, programs often like to measure the volume of activities they perform because one, it makes them feel good and look good, I think, to put together, here's all that we've been doing. And because it's easy to do, it's easy to count things. But um, high levels of activity don't necessarily correlate with high levels of quality or or with effectiveness. Um, Although high levels of activity do tend to correlate with high resource utilization, you know, cost. Um, so I've seen programs with extremely high consult volumes, for example, that I don't think were having that much of an impact organization-wide um, or not having a positive impact. So I think it's essential to look beyond just counting consults or counting educational programs or policies so on and to look for more meaningful things to measure that relate more directly to the program's effectiveness. Um, so one, one place to start, I think that's a good idea is to, um, to think about your organization's ethical challenges, um, because every organization is different. Um, are there certain misconceptions, um, that are affecting patient care? Maybe there's misconceptions about DNR orders, um, in a particular, uh, area, um, are there recurring problems in a certain area? Um, so maybe recurring problems with patients who lack decision-making capacity and have no surrogate or you know, a particular type of case that uh, has been causing problems. Um, are there decisions about certain therapies like um, ECMO or you know, high-tech, th- it's uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, uh, you know, high-tech therapy for, for breathing. Um, are there certain therapies that are causing moral distress? Um, so in each of these areas, you could assess your current practices. What are we doing now? What's the status quo? And then set a goal for what should we be doing and then you can monitor how things have changed over time. And that's a very meaningful result. It'll be meaningful not only to the ethics program, but also to organizational leadership when they can see real change like that. When you think about how to evaluate ethics consults, what metrics would you consider to be important? There are four major types of evaluation, and sometimes they get blended together, and they really do need to get parsed out a little bit so that we can actually uh, make a progression uh, uh, to the end, which is impact. So the first one is a needs assessment. You know, what are the characteristics, the needs, the priorities of this population? What are the barriers who might help us? Um, sometimes it's really good just to do asset mapping. Who, who are the resources? Who do you already have on an ethics committee that can help um, promote the ethics service? Not necessarily just the consultation service, but just how do we have an ethical culture writ large? 
Then when we think about process evaluation, this is how is the program implemented? Are the activities delivered as intended? Um, is there fidelity to the implementation? So then that helps inform outcomes. So to what extent are the desired changes occurring? How does this improve patient care? That, that's part of the outcome. You know, who's benefiting, who's not? Um, why aren't physicians requesting a consult? What is the hindrance? Um, what are unintended outcomes? So um, if every time an ethics consult happens, this was something that previously belonged in the arena of risk management or legal, and now they're upset that, that they're not able to own that, that can affect um, our overall operations or could be a risk unto itself if these are things that should belong to legal or risk. And then the impact is to what extent can changes be attributed to the program? Mary, your research has been focused on data and outcomes of clinical ethics consultation. Would you describe your research for us? What did it look like? When I first started um, thinking about um, how can ethics measure outcomes the same way that other operational areas um, measure impact. Um, I was really drawn, as, as I've reiterated throughout this conversation, to quality and patient safety. And some of that um, is, is a bias because um, uh, Dr. Dale Bratzler, who um, is uh, an amazing quality patient safety guru, was my dissertation advisor and one of my favorite professors at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center School of Public Health. And um, Dr. Bratzler was really made this great point that that uh, the least good, the least safe place for persons to be is in the hospital. That that our job is to get people out of the hospital into, you know, with the safe discharge plan, the services that they need, et cetera, um, because there's just lots of risks, whether it's medication errors, um, whether it's a patient um, who gets up to um, use the commode that falls, you know, any of these things can happen. And so while those don't seem like ethics issues, they are in the sense of, you know, um, let's say someone has uh, sort of transi transitioning between being fully capacitated, having sundowners in the evening, you know, do they really, can they give informed consent? They don't have an advanced directive. They have lots of family members involved. Um, you know, and then ethics says, oh, but we're not on for the weekend. We'll see you on Monday, you know, and then two days go by and something could have happened to that patient in, in that time frame. Or um, more often what happens is, you know, having an outside perspective to say, gosh, this looks like it could be an ethics issue down the road um, is really important. How do we think about this from um, a health services research perspective of where can we look for correlation and causation? So that's been the hardest thing with ethics consultation is understanding that causal pathway of if I do this, then this particular outcome will happen. And um, so we determined that um, excess length of stay and excess in terms of um, someone's um, what's called the diagnostic reimbursement group, which is what the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid say are um, the most appropriate length of stay for a particular disease condition. So then, so the other outcome would be about um, what's called low realization rate. And that's the proportion 
that an organization gets reimbursed um, for a particular condition. And um, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that I, I received some critique um, from some of my favorite colleagues who are really concerned about thinking of um, financial outcomes in, uh, related to ethics consultation. And the argument that I made, and I still stand by this, is that it is, it, writ large, we have a dysfunctional um, health insurance system, and and there are massive disparities associated with that. And so given those constraints or just assumptions that we have, not thinking about reimbursement is a naive approach because whether it's someone who is self-insured and this is a bill that they are going to get, someone who's self-insured and this is a bad debt that an organization is going to write off, or they are well insured and the insurance company pays out the entire cost that still gets passed on in terms of premiums. So again, while it was about these um, inpatient patient outcomes, the implications again are much larger. And so what we, what I hypothesized is that earlier ethics consultations reduced the the likelihood or the odds, so I used an odds ratio, the odds of an excess length of stay and the odds of low realization or low reimbursement rate. All of you have been working with data related to ethics committees for a while now. What have you discovered in looking at that data? What have been the aha moments? What we saw is that if you, um, that most of the cases were not end of life. They were not whether or not we ought to continue um, life-sustaining treatment. They more were about surrogate decision-making or shared decision. So shared decision-making predominantly. And then within that, um, you know, who an appropriate surrogate decision-maker is, whether or not they were actually um, promoting the values of that person and the decision-making capacity of that person. Um, and, And I think that's important because a lot of times the question comes to us of, um, you know, do I have to resuscitate this person? And really, again, that's a shared decision-making process, you know, of, you know, what, what does this mean? What does it look like? So no matter what, late ethics consultations had more profound adverse outcomes. So um, they had a, a much higher length of stay. They had a much higher um um, bill and and so one of the examples that I gave was about um, a, a Medicare a patient who had Medicare who had a late conv- consultation so that meant a consultation after two days to two midnights and um, so the average net margin um, that we lost the organization lost um, fifteen thousand six hundred dollars compared that if you receive if you are a Medicare patient and had an ethics an early ethics consultation, we only lost fourteen hundred dollars. Those are healthcare dollars or resources that could be utilized by the community that are being lost because of a late consult. Right. So so fourteen thousand dollars on average per Medicare patient. So so you know this CMS as part of, you know, value-based purchasing and, you know, wanting to decrease um, hospital readmissions, you know, all of that is really so that persons who have Medicare have the Medicare dollars that they need, right? This is not an infinite pool of money as as we've all, you know, heard in the most recent um, 
political cycles and elections, you know, that are determining this. So, you know, when we think about that, that's a huge proportion of the population. And, and, and again, that's why I mentioned that these weren't necessarily end of life cases in the sense of it wasn't, do we, or do we not provide non-beneficial care, but, but do the benefits of the treatment outweigh the burdens? And, you know, $14,000 per patient is, is nothing um, small. And, and that's, you know, Medicare is considered one of the best payers, right, in, in terms of case mix index. Part of it is just background. Um, it's been uh, an interesting shift. Um, I think because it was initially focused on capturing the right data in order to be able to ask the right questions and just the evolution of once you have these data, it perpetuates further questions and digging and digging, and digging. That's just been intriguing. But in terms of, you know, impact and we looked at readmission rates, we looked at readmission rates based on consultation, non-consultation. We looked at overall cost and impact uh, based on consultation, non-consultation with like groups, comparing cohorts, being very rigorous about like cohorts. Um, but where the shift is occurring now, when I get back to this idea of process and service delivery, we're starting to look at things like what are the essential elements of a high quality consult and are all elements there in the midst of the consult delivery? So, you know, when I looked at, um, could I pay for my own salary? It was sort of an ongoing, um, sort of a tease, but sort of real when I, I started at one of my places and, I remember a request coming in um, for a medication that costs $450,000 for just um, a three-month regimen. And so the question actually came from finance, and they said, do we have to pay for a $450,000 medication? And I said, let's get everybody together. The physician, you know, let's talk about it. And the physician was like, this is really important. The patient's going to die if we don't do this. It it was an experimental medication for this kind of patient. This patient did not qualify for any other clinical trial. Um, and when we asked the question, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next six months? You know, so are they hospice appropriate? The, the physician said, no, of course not. He said, but, but I feel like I have to offer something to this patient. So, you know, ethics, the recommendation was this is excessively burdensome and, and is this a good stewarding of our resources? So I, I probably paid for my salary for a couple of years by um, helping to decide if, if we were going to expend this amount of money, but, but the larger cost, what did that do with my relationship with this physician? How does finance see me as a partner in the future? And that's also when we think about, is it worth what it costs? So if I tick everybody off as an ethicist, I'm not improving anything and it'll actually cost more in the long run. Where do you see data and clinical ethics moving to in the future? Many committees are now tracking data related to ethics consults, but what's next? I, I think that um, for some ethicists, uh, AI kind of probably weirds them out and or they've discounted it as sort of a niche neuroethics um, area. And, and I think that that's a disservice. And so in order to be on the leading edge, we do need to be talking to our health informaticists. We need to be talking about people, people who are doing AI because ethics can and should 
influence those particular areas. So, you know, part of my uh, dissertation research was looking at predictors of these adverse patient outcomes. So my hypothesis still stands that if, if there's some way that we could draw from a patient's record these particular attributes, can we flag a case that might require ethics um, recommendations at some point or another? And we've seen this like with palliative care. If there's someone who's been in the ICU for, you know, three or more days, there's no healthcare directive, there's no healthcare proxy, um, you know, how, how are we going to identify the goals of care? And so I think that that's the way that ethics can be on the leading edge. The final thing I would say is that the real leaders in the field, they, they're not merely responding to requests for consultation or from other people asking them to do things. Instead, they are proactively scanning the organizational landscape. They are focusing their energies on um, specific areas where improvement is needed in that organization. And so ultimately, they're seeing uh, measurable results. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast. Exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.